You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. If you've been in the yoga world long enough to have your rose-colored glasses knocked off a time or two, you might be fully on board with the need for more discernment and critical thinking in the yoga space. Even brand new teachers these days have access to way more knowledge than ever before about some of the abuses and misinformation that have caused harm to vulnerable teachers and practitioners. The conversation that you'll hear on this episode today ended up being surprisingly personal for me because the story of both of my guests mirrored my own story in some unexpected and surprising ways. If you're a yoga teacher who's up for hearing some hard truths and willing to get uncomfortable in order to do better, you'll definitely appreciate this conversation with Diane Bondi and Kat Hegberg. Diane is a social justice activist, author, and accessible yoga teacher. She's also the leader of the Yoga for All movement. Kat is the editor of Yoga International, where Kat and Diane met and bonded over their previous affiliation with a style of yoga that they now both view as a cult. During our conversation, Diane, Kat, and I discussed what it was like to be part of a yoga cult, their evolving definition of spirituality, how we can teach accessible classes that are still challenging, and also their ideas for how we as a community can evolve and do better especially within the realm of training yoga teachers. As I mentioned before, the conversation does get pretty deep and pretty personal, but that's what I love about it. I had never met either of these two incredible teachers before today, but I really resonated with their honesty, their clarity, and their sense of integrity and the willingness to do the bold thing that they believe is right, even if it's not necessarily the popular thing in the moment. I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I enjoyed recording it, and I'll see you on the other side. Kat and Diane, welcome to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. It is such an honor to have you here today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. I would love to start by hearing from each of you just a little bit about your journey, first into yoga and then into teaching. Um, so I'm, I'm Kat, um, Kat Hegberg, I'm actually Kat Rebar. I recently got married, but, um, if you, if you see our, our book, it'll say Kat Hegberg on the book. Um, and, um, I started practicing yoga when I was in college, I would say I did a little bit, you know, with like the MTV yoga videos and things like that. When I was in high school, um, my mom did some yoga inspired movement at home. When I was a kid, I remember, um, my mom going into plow pose and shoulder stand. And when she'd go into plow, I would jump on her back. Um, sorry, mom. Cause it seemed like a very fun place to be as like a two-year-old child. Um, and so, so I think I kind of hindered my mom's practice a little there, but I remember her doing back bends and shoulder stands and things like that. Um, and I was always really into dance. I was a dance, uh, I studied dance in college. So that was kind of my thing. And once you go to study dance in college, you kind of realize that either you're want to like try to be a professional dancer or, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to bow out now. Thank you. And I decided I'm going to bow out now. Thank you. And, um, I just started teaching Pilates just to kind of make some extra money. And people would often come to my class and they would say, what's the difference between Pilates and yoga? And I would say, I don't know. I don't really, I don't really do yoga. Um, I mean, I've taken a class once or twice on campus, but, but I don't know. Um, so I kept getting this question and I kept thinking, you know, yoga is something that I think I might like. It's, it's a type of movement that, you know, seems similar to types of movement that I already do. So I'm going to try it out. So I started taking classes at my local YMCA and um, a lot of the teachers at my local YMCA were Anisara teachers at the time. And so that was the kind of yoga that I was introduced to Diana's body because we have very similar backgrounds here. Um, 
And I loved it. I had done, I had danced every day, even when I stopped, you know, I'm um, trying to, to make it big as a dancer. Um, I still danced every day. And then gradually my daily dance class became replaced with a daily yoga class. And I just, um, just completely was enthralled by the practice, like only a new yoga person can be. And um, after practicing for maybe about a year, because I had been teaching um, other forms of movement, they asked me to start teaching yoga classes. So I did, I think, like a, a yoga fit training at my local college. Um, actually, it was the first time I was asked to teach a class was um, I thought I was teaching a Pilates class and I hadn't done any yoga training. I had just been taking yoga classes. And so I went to this space and I said, hi, I'm Kat. Welcome to Pilates. And um, the students said, well, this is supposed to be a yoga class. So I was like, well, um, downward facing dog. And I'm sure it wasn't a great class, but I had, you know, thankfully enough knowledge to at least teach a safe movement class that I think it was probably not, not too terrible. Um, and so then I was like, okay, I need to, I need to get more training in this yoga thing. So I had been teaching, you know, some yoga like classes. I did the weekend yoga fit training and, you know, I was taking class every day, just eager to learn more. And I really wanted to train in Anusara because that was what my teachers did. And that was what, you know, seemed like the gold standard to me. And so um, I looked into the training and I found out I could not afford that training. Um, so I actually found a para yoga, uh, Rod Strikers para yoga training in the next town over, um, taught by Karina Mercer who was my first 200 hour yoga teacher. And she said, you know, she gave me a really good um, discount on the training and said, you know, come study with me. She really resonated with me. I really liked how authentic her teaching was. And then it was also really rooted in science and alignment and things that were and are important to me. Um, so I did my 200 hour training with her and I was like, I want more. Where do I go next? And um, she at the time was on faculty at the Himalayan Institute in Pennsylvania and said, why don't you go to the Himalayan Institute and do an internship there? So I did, I did an internship and I did my 500 hour teacher training. Like after being there a month, I started teaching there. And um, I actually, at that same time, I realized that there was, I was gonna be able to take some Anusara training. So I would go into New York city to do my Anusara training. And so I was doing that all at the same time too. Um, and that's when I kind of got hired to work for Yoga International. Um, and I worked there in the editorial department for years. I'm, I'm still there now. Um, but in between, I'd moved to Portland, Oregon, taught, done more Anusara, come back, done more Anusara. Um, as we all know, the whole Anusara thing didn't really work out. Um, and so I think it was, I got my certificate and then I immediately resigned. <laughs> like that was it. It was just like the timing was was that. Um, I started studying more vinyasa, more diverse movement, which kind of informs my practice and teaching today. And it was through my work at Yoga International that I met my wonderful friend and co-author and colleague and and inspiration mentor, Diane Bondi. Funny. <laughs> Thanks, Kat. Wow. 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 Um, I love hearing your story, Kat, because mine is very, very similar. So I, I started doing yoga movement um, with my mom as well. Uh, my brother and sister are twins. And when they were born, I was kind of, I felt kind of displaced because it's one thing to have one new sibling. And it's another thing entirely to have two new siblings. And uh, everybody was always coming over to the house to see the twins. And this was a, a big deal. And I was feeling really kind of left out. And my mom decided that she would share her yoga practice with me. So I know every day from like three to 3.30, she would take out this book. I think I still have it. I still have it on my shelf. This is the book I learned from yoga from. It was called Be Young with Yoga and it's written by uh, Richard Hittleman. So cute. It has my uh, it has my childhood address in the front of the book. But my mother had bought this when she was a student um, in England uh, learning nursing. And so she had always had this book where she was doing all of this these practices. And I just, we used to flip through this book and find the funny pictures that we thought were funny in this book and just mimic the pictures. We'd read the, you know, we'd read what it was and then we'd mimic the pictures. But this was the beginning. This book was written in 1956. Yeah. 
and went out of print, print and I think in 1970. But this book was the beginning of my yoga journey uh, with my mom. And uh, we used to just practice together in the basement. I don't remember jumping on her back, but I was three, so it probably happened. So it was probably a lot of, you know, horseplay and my mother thinking this was not a good idea. She was trying to get her yoga on and inviting me to the practice probably wasn't her best idea. But we, uh, we continued to practice together until I, you know, went off to college, until uh, I moved out. And uh, I'm at, I have always been active. And so when I was in uh, high school, I had a presentation to do for my fitness class. So we, I took grade 11 gym class and there was a bunch of things you could take. And there was this one class called fitness. And all we did was run and swim. And we did that for a whole semester. And that was so boring. So when we got our independent projects to do, I asked my, um, my teacher if I could do a project on yoga or stretching. We called it stretching then. And so I grabbed this book and I put together a little sequence and I taught it to my class and everybody thought it was great. And so that kind of continued on as an after school project. And then I was like, oh, well, maybe I want to get some more training in this. So then I, I, I didn't understand yoga as a spiritual modality or as um, an awareness modality. At that point, it was just a fitness modality. So I ended up taking fitness training. So I took personal training cert and I took group fitness instructor and I did all that stuff. And I would just kind of weave yoga in. But at that time, we didn't have 200 hour teacher trainings. This, you know, this would have been the eighties. The yoga Alliance wasn't a thing then. So you kind of people who were teaching were people who were coming from South Asia and teaching, right? Like none, nobody had this certification. Uh, so I taught myself to teach yoga and I had been doing it for a long time. And then when I uh, got pregnant in 2005 with my son, I thought I would like, or 2004, I would like to do yoga more for my body. Like all this other stuff I was doing felt really tough on my body. And the bigger I was getting, the harder it was to do all the other things that I used to like to do. So my yoga uh, practice uh, came full center, like was the, was the practice that I did the most. And uh, I started just kind of teaching out of my local church here. Um, I rented out their community room and I sent out uh, flyers to all my friends, unless I'm going to do yoga in the community, you're welcome to come. And more people started coming and coming. And then I thought, yikes, maybe I should get some training. <laughs> so I went off and took my 200 hours out in Michigan at a yoga, the oldest yoga studio in the Detroit area, Namaste Yoga Studio in Royal Oak. So I took my 200 hour training there and my anatomy teacher was an Anasara teacher. And I was just like, what is this magical thing they're talking about? What is this inner outer spiral, inner body, bright. Oh my gosh. Yes, please. More, more. And so, um, I climbed on the Anasara, Anasara train and drank the Kool-Aid and got fully immersed, followed John friend around the country, had, um, a couple of teachers in Michigan that I studied with every week. When I finished my 200 hours, I went right into the 300 hour, um, Anasara yoga teacher training. I think I was out of teacher training for like 10 minutes. I'm like, sign me up for the next thing. I want more. And so, I taught Anasar for a long time until it imploded uh, with all the drama. And then like a cat started going back to like, oh yeah, I liked Ashtanga. Oh yeah, I liked Vinyasa. Hola, what are the Kundalini folks doing? So I just kind of went out and took everything because I didn't know what to do. Um, and I just was really sad that that community kind of fell apart or wasn't what I thought it was. So I just started looking at all the opportunities to practice. And then I realized when I looked around, um, that the uh, that the yoga was really rooted in being able-bodied and athletic and fit and attractive and rich and white. And I thought to myself, none of these things really speak to me at this point. So maybe it's time for me to push back a little bit. So I started uh, writing blog posts and got in contact with a woman named um, Melanie Klein. And we created this thing called the Yoga and Body uh, Image Coalition. And all the time that I was in teacher training, I should mention this, all the articles that we were reading in teacher training were from Doug Keller, my 200 hour teaching training, right from the Yoga International Magazine at the time. So these articles were right out of this magazine. So then I got a subscription to Yoga International. And a few years later, I get this email from Yoga International going, Would you like to share your content on our platform? And I was like, oh, I've arrived. Oh my God. So, what? 
wait, what? And that's how uh, Kat and I met. We met like on her birthday weekend. We've been friends now for what, like five years. And when we met each other and we started talking about Anasara, we were instant best friends. And I think maybe, I don't know, uh, an hour into meeting, we're like, we need to write a book, like literally. And then we had a, like, it, it was weird. And then we would start it and we would stop it and we would start it and we would stop it. And we'd get all these things going on and we have super busy lives. And if you, if you guys don't already know, um, Kat's the editor in chief at yoga internationals. So, uh, she's busy. I'm busy. We were training this whole accessible yoga, inclusive yoga thing kind of took off and, uh, we kept circling back and circling back to it. And then eventually we had an opportunity to work with Shambhala and that really helped like solidify us. Then we actually had to sit down and write it and stop talking about writing it. <laughs> and then I, I got an opportunity to meet the the awesome, awesome, awesome Kat Hegberg, who turned out to be one of my closest and dearest friends. And uh, we could relate to all the Anasara stuff. And we taught from a very similar perspective. And I was only taking her classes on Yoga International. So it just, it was just, it all came together in this head. And and here we are. <laughs> Sorry, I'm I can't believe that our book like actually exists still. Every time I look at it on my desk, I'm like, wow, we made this. We did this. This is and and I should say too that we couldn't have done it without without all of our models in here. And um, also without another one of our dear friends, um, Andrea Annie Killam, who did all the photos. She's, um, Annie and I have worked together since 2009 at Yoga International and have been friends since then too. And as soon as Diane and I were talking about this book, we're like, do you think Annie would do the photos? And she was, you know, she just jumped on board and was like, yes, I would love to, absolutely. And um, yeah, we definitely couldn't have done it without her. Oh yeah. Everybody who was involved in this book, it was just, it was like a week. We shot it at Yoga International and it was just like a week of love. It was just meeting everybody. And like, we all knew each other from filming together and being together. And it was just a really great opportunity to, to bring a sense of community and friendship and love of the practice into the book. And then you can see that in the photographs and you can feel that in the writing. Like it was a really special project to do. And the great thing about Shambhala is it's it's mostly as a publisher you're kind of self-led so you get to kind of write what you want to write about and then they kind of help you to craft it into uh, what you want to say which I think is really great with um, sometimes with other books you're given a specific topic and you write about it and then you know it's edited down to whatever but this book was kind of like we had free reign to to be ourselves and to talk about what we wanted to talk about, which ultimately led us into writing two books. We were only supposed to write 50,000 words. And then. Yeah. We turned in our manuscript like double as long as it needed to be. So there was a lot that we had to cut, but yeah, that was, that's the nice thing about working with another person too, is we would, I would say to Diane, like, okay, make cuts be brutal. And she would say, make cuts be brutal. So we would like edit each other because it's so you like, you write something and you're like, this thing that I wrote is really important because I wrote it and it's yes. important. And then, so kind of to get that other perspective, like, okay, we don't need this and this, you can, yeah. Yeah. You can take out the one, this one variation, like it, it'll really be okay. Um, so to kind of have that, that um, helpful friend, you know, giving you that little, little reminder, like everything that's really important to you might not be really important to the reader too, is great. It, there were no feelings like nobody was like oh my gosh you know what I mean there was none of that that we could be really honest with each other so that was really helpful it is it's super helpful to have that outside perspective on whatever creative work you're doing I also love how your collaboration came out of this really challenging time because I haven't met either of you before Diane I feel like maybe I met you actually a long time ago because I was also in Anusara I bet a workshop together somewhere. Yeah. So like your story is totally my story too. My mom also died in 2012. So this was all happening at the same time. Oh. It was such a world shatterer, you know, like everything falls apart and then you get a chance to look at the pieces and you say, what do I want to keep? Yeah. And it was such a gift to no longer have this dogma because as much as they liked you know, the Anusara community, the, the teachers, the whole perspective, like to talk about how there was no dogma. It was super dogmatic. Totally. <laughs> it was totally. super dogmatic. Yes. And it's like, 
you know, because it's kind of a cult. Kind of. <laughs> um, you, the, the reason I say kind of is that yeah. like you could yeah. leave. It didn't go as far into the cult world as it could as, have. As it could have. Yes. But it was kind of a cult. So you are questioning your own reality if you disagree with anything. Right. Because it all makes so much sense. It's all so logical. It's all explained so well. And it kind of puts me in the mind of like the current climate with QAnon and like, which, you know, is way more extreme, (laughs) but it's also like, how do we get people to believe things that make zero sense? Right. And now when I look back on like what I believed in Anus- when I was in Anusara, I'm like, that, no, that makes zero sense. Like all this talk about how this is like the gold standard, this is the PhD, like. Really? <laughs> is yeah. that? <laughs> yeah. There are lots of really rigorous programs out there, mm-hmm. but if you just listened to John <laughs> and didn't do your own research, then you, I mean, I don't know, I can't speak for you guys, but I developed like a little snobbishness around like, yeah, I'm doing like totally. the best yoga. Totally. I'm sure I've said that. I'm sure I've recorded myself saying that. Um, even when I was doing all the spirals and the loops and the inner body bright and all that stuff, I was still was like, I don't think my back really likes this, but it's supposed to be universal. Like this idea that there could be universal principles of alignment. Like just just hear that, just hear that for a second, that everybody's body is exactly the same. So alignment's going to work. This particular principle, it's going to work in everybody's body. What? And then forcing it to work in everybody's body. And I was always a plus size, big girl yoga person. So there was no way, like there'd be these really um, small framed people who could lift themselves up on their fingertips and stuff. And I'd be like, yeah, no amount of inner spiraling is going to get this butt off the floor. I'm sorry. It's just, it's not happening. And you know what, how freeing it was to let go of that dogma. Like, you know what I mean? Uh, And one breath, Anasara would say, you know, never cut down any other style of yoga. That's not who we are. And then the other breath out of the other side of their neck, as we say in my community, uh, they would be like, oh, we're the gold standard. Nobody's as educated as we They would say practically in the same sentence. So you couldn't help but become this Anasara snob, right? Oh, are you an inspired teacher? Well, I'm a fully Anasara. Like it was ridiculous. And then when the whole thing fell apart, all the infighting and all the little chat groups on Facebook, it was like, I watched it and I was like, Wow, people really turned on these for a community that was a what did what did we call ourselves? A kula. For a community that was a kula, everybody turned on each other so fast. It was amazing to watch human nature unfold. And I was at one of John's, I think, last public teachings at the uh Florida in Florida. I went to Florida to where he was like sleeping with a couple people that I could figure out by how they were all interacting together. And that's when I had, this was a year before Anasara started to fall apart. And I had a moment, I had a glance at this. I go, this is starting to feel weird. Cause my husband kept saying to me, don't drink the Kool-Aid. And I'm like, I'm drinking the Kool-Aid and I'm spraying it all over everybody. And then I came back and he was like, <laughs> and then I went to this thing with a friend of mine and she started, who wasn't in Anasar and she started pointing stuff out to me as it was happening. And then I was just like, Oh, I just needed somebody else who was on the outside to just go, uh, this doesn't really make sense. Do you see, do you see how this doesn't make sense? Like, just, I know you're in it and this is your experience and, and I'm happy. It makes you happy, but uh, I don't really understand this part. So maybe you could explain it to me. And when I had to explain it to her, I was like, wait a minute. And the part for those listening who aren't familiar with Anusara, the part that's really problematic was the glorification of deep asana postures as being deeply spiritual. Totally. That to me, looking back is like, that should have been the most enormous red flag in the world, but it felt so good to be included and to belong. Mm -hmm. And that's the lure of the cult, right? Mm -hmm. So I know that for myself, when the whole thing fell apart, I was invited by 
you know, by the situation to question every single thing that I had been taught. And that's what led me to studying anatomy and to studying individuality and how each person is going to have different needs and different expression. And once you, once you start paying attention to that, then it makes zero sense for any physical posture to be at all related to like a level of spirituality. Yeah. But you buy in though. You want to believe in it so bad. And that's what ends up happening. That whole sense of we're all these like yoga misfits and then we find each other. And then, you know, all of a sudden we've created this thing that doesn't really exist. And I couldn't tell you how relieved I was when I could explore all this other stuff. And because John was very clear about not, what did he call, not cross-pollinating was the word he used. Right, not cross-pollinating with other stuff. Yeah, I always broke that rule because of my affiliations with Yoga International, and and so so I always felt like such a rebel there. I was like, I'm cross-pollinating, but no one can know. <laughs> but again, red flag right, right? there, huge right. red flag. A hundred percent. Once you kind of had your eyes opened, and you realized, okay, there's nothing inherently spiritual about being better at asana. How do you then, because what's appealing about that is it's an easy way to measure, right? Oh, now I can, I'm getting more spiritual because I'm getting deeper in my poses. So clearly I'm getting more spiritual. It's easy. You can see it. What became your new framework? Like how, how did your relationship with what does it even mean to be spiritual, right? And how do you progress on that path? How did that evolve for you? Sure. Yeah. Um, that's a wonderful question. And that's a question that I think that I'm still kind of exploring today. Um, I feel like spirituality is something that has always been a bit of a struggle for me. Growing up, I was raised, uh, I was raised Catholic, not like, you know, a super religious, anything like that, but, you know, go to church on Sunday, do all the the holy days of obligation, things like that. And then when you're 18, you don't have to go to church anymore. Um, so I didn't. Um, and then I ended up in my early 20s, um, getting married very young to someone from a very religious family. And so I tried really, really hard to be religious. Um, that did not work out, nor did that marriage, which, um, you know, is typical for most things one embarks upon in their 20s. <laughs> and um so then kind of discovering yoga and getting into yoga, it was, it was like, this is so different. This feels so, um, so much more open than what I was raised with. And then kind of like, you know, especially with the Anisara stuff, it kind of like was like, well, this, this doesn't really resonate with me. This doesn't really fit, but I want to try really hard because I want to fit in. And it started to feel like fitting in, trying to fit into church environments when I was younger to my, my ex-husband's family environments when I was older. And, and it was the same, like, I'm trying so hard to get on board with this, but it, it doesn't feel authentic to me. And then when all of a sudden I had the freedom to not only start my class in child's pose instead of a cross-legged seated pose, or um, maybe even standing when I didn't have to have a theme and I didn't have to have um, a core principle for every class to focus on anything like that. And I could just say, well, I had to learn how to trust myself more as a teacher. And ultimately, I guess that helped me to trust myself more as a person and to realize well, oh, okay, I actually don't believe in God. I'm, I'm actually, I think I'm an atheist and that's where I am. And what does it mean to still be spiritual and to still honor yoga's roots as, you know, a white person who is doing the practice? How can I honor that this is something that does not come from my ancestors that I did not create that I'm that I'm um, benefiting from how can I honor that well at the same time acknowledging that I don't believe in the supernatural um, so that's something that's a balance that I still struggle with today and that I still um, question today but I think ultimately it comes down to um, acknowledging and honoring where this practice came from and that it's not mine and also acknowledging the things that I value and really living that in my teaching and in my life as best as I can. And for me, when I look at what do I really value, it's 
equity, justice, inclusivity. Um, in Yoga International, we have a very strong policy to not promote diet culture, to never list weight loss as a benefit. And that's, I always say that is a hill that I will die on because, you know, growing up in a dance environment, not to say, you know, that that's totally negative or that it always like leads to disordered eating, but certainly is something that affected my life and the lives of a lot of people that I know. So it's just like, that is, that is non-negotiable. That's a value that is, you know, I'm going to bring into my work. And so I guess to me, spirituality has morphed from a more abstract believing in or not believing in something to more of a, how do I actively live my values and how can this practice and the work that I'm doing in this practice empower that. I love that. That's such a great answer. And before I want to hear Diane's answer as well, but I would love to ask a follow-up question because I know that many of my listeners struggle with the same questions. And I think it'd be really helpful if you could share some examples of how you honor yoga in your classes, because I know that for, for many teachers who are grappling with these questions, examples are really helpful. One thing is to always, um, whenever I can, you know, acknowledge where something comes from. Um, I don't necessarily have to quote, believe in it myself, but to find out, to say, okay, well, this Sanskrit word that I'm offering you, it, it appears in this text. Um, and to the best of my knowledge, this is where it comes from. This is, um, this is a little bit of history about that. This is where you can find out more. Um, I also try to always guide people who have more questions toward South Asian teachers who know a lot more about things than I do. Um, I mean, I've taken Sanskrit classes and studied Sanskrit because language is super fun and super interesting to me. But there are so many times when I'm like, I think I know how to say this word. And someone's like, no, you don't. Pat. Just what? And so to instead of try to like white people explain and be like, no, actually, my Sanskrit teacher said this. I'm like, oh, OK, thank you for telling me that. I'm going to say that correctly now. Um, yeah, but just to acknowledge, um, to acknowledge that there's so much more that I don't know than that I do know. And um, again, that you don't necessarily have to like believe in something or agree with something to just, you know, say, hey, this is where this comes from. Um, I come across that a lot in the like to just to, to take the yamas and the niyamas as an example, you know, you have brahmacharya, which is celibacy. And you can look at it other ways and apply it to your life in other ways, but it does mean celibacy. And I'm not gonna practice celibacy, but I'm also not gonna be like, this doesn't say that because I don't want it to say that, you know? Like it, it just, it's okay to say, this is what this thing teaches. I don't personally believe it, or I don't personally, um, resonate with that, but it's not okay for me to just change it and make it into something else to fit my life. Like everything doesn't have to adapt itself to me or be for me. Like that's okay. Um, and I had a teacher a long time ago, I think that really helped me with that because, um, we were, I was uh, assisting her in a teacher training and um, we were reading the Bhagavad Gita and a student said, I don't like this because it's, there's, it's glorifying war. I mean, you could, you know, I don't, you could argue that either way, but I don't like it because it's not saying that war is bad or negative. And the teacher said, well, you don't have to like it. That's just what it says. You know, no, nobody's telling you that you have to like sign on 100% or agree to this 100%, but you can't just make it into whatever you want it to be. And I love how in a way in our culture, especially with social media, this is getting more and more and more. It seems like there's this push to make everything about you, right? Mm -hmm. Everything about the individual. Mm -hmm. um, I've got to build my authority. I've got to build my brand. <laughs> and so the more we do this, the more we step away from some of these practices like humility, mm -hmm. which you know, what I love about yoga, one of the things I love about yoga, it, and one of the things I did love about Anusara is the way they taught that you can have complementary opposites. They both exist. They're both real and true. And it's your relationship in between them that is your practice, basically. So that's something I still believe. That's something that, you know, I decided to keep <laughs> from, from all the wreckage. But what I really love about what you're saying, Kat, is, is it's really 
okay to not have all the answers and to live in that state of not needing to be the ultimate authority on everything. That to me is a beautiful example of spirituality. Yeah. So thanks for sharing that. And Diane, I'd love to hear your perspective as well. I remember being very enticed by the physical practice because I've always had this able, strong, flexible body. So when yoga came to to me, it came to me as a form of exercise that my mother was using. And then the more we read this book, the more I started to realize um, there's way more to it. And then in my very first teacher training where I found that 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 parallel for me, that connection to spirit to me for me was... Um, when we first started looking at the eight limbs and we started with the very first limb, which is ahimsa, right? The very first tenant that I learned, nonviolence. And at the time, uh, the teacher training that I was in was very diverse. We had people of color. We had a person who was a single amputee. Uh, we had people who were older. Um, my teacher, uh, Linda Mankowski, who was running the trainer, the training at the time, was um, part of, is part of the LGBTQIA community. So I had a really interesting um, mix of people. And when we all came together to start um, to read what the philosophy was about and how we had to look at the philosophy as it pertained to us. And as a, as a black woman, um, whenever I look at any kind of philosophy, I always look at, at it, how it can help my community. And so for me, when my teacher had said, we're starting with Ahimsa, and when you look in the mirror and you hate yourself, whether it's my skin tone or my hair texture or the size of my body, that's violence that you do to yourself. And that internalized violence now moves out into the world through you because you criticizing yourself in front of your children or in front of your family gives them not only permission to criticize you, but to criticize themselves. And this has this ripple effect. And so what if we could look at ourselves um, as an example for others to follow. And that happens a lot in the black community, I find where um, we look to like our leaders or our elders within our community to share something. And that was the first click for me that I wanted to do more with this practice than just kind of flip around my mat. And to me, that felt like a divine calling. Now for me, I don't believe in um, God is this person on a hill with a staff, long flowing hair, like Santa Claus doling out punishments and, you know, and, and, and gifts to people. Like, I don't see it like that, but I do see that we have a common understanding or that there's this thread or this, like the sutra of what I call divine consciousness. There are like laws of the universe that we know to be universally true. And that love and connection and equity are these kinds of universal truths that we weave together. And so all of a sudden my yoga became less about physicality and less about this divine spirituality than it did about doing good in the world. Like how can I use this practice that makes me feel good about myself, that gives me self-actualization, that makes me deeply critical based on my experiences I've had, makes me question everything. How can I use all those skills that I've learned from this practice, go out into the world and start deconstructing the bullshit that I see in the world? How do I start deconstructing um, white supremacy through yoga? What are the tenets of yoga that directly link to that? And the example that uh, Kat just used, Brahmacharya, absolutely means celibacy, right? And when I think of that, I also think it mean, of it meaning right use of energy, right? I don't want to go out there and use people for my own benefit, right? Sexually or anyway. What is the right use of energy for me? The right use of energy for me is to call out bullshit when I see it, is to question systems that teach us some people in order for me to have more, somebody else to have less. And that's not the way the world works. And to see that in real time and to start use the little bits of philosophy and the little thing, the little things that caught my attention in the reading. When we were reading the Bhagavad Gita, the thing that stuck out to me from that book, even though it was about war, and I had a very similar situation in my teacher training where somebody said to me, I thought this was yoga and we're going to talk about it is, it is his dharma. It's divine calling to go and kill all these people. I go, okay, so 
we don't know that this is a real story and you don't, you can take it or leave it, which is what I said to the teacher. I said, it is what it is. This is the story. But what if you could take from that story, what is your divine calling? What is the effort that you're going to put out into the world to make it a better place for your descendants, for the world? And being Canadian, we are far less individualistic. America really has this American exceptionalism and an American um, individualism that doesn't really happen in other places in the world to the extent that it happens in America. And so I could start to see my little pod of community as a way to uplift people and a way to bring people back to themselves, which I think is the ultimate divinity, right? Not this not this idol that we look up to for the answers, that the answers reside in, in, inside of us if we sit and we think and we look and we use these principles of nonviolence, of being truthful, of brahmacharya, for me, right use of energy, because me too, I'm not going to be celibate, right? I'm, I'm married. That's not going to work at my house. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, I can find ways to adapt this philosophy in changing the world. And for me, that is the line that, that divinity plays or that our universal consciousness plays. Yeah. So I'm hearing a lot of, you know, off the mat yoga and the philosophy. And I also have a similar experience where, you know, like my movement practice has shifted and evolved a lot. And I don't feel very dogmatic about my movement practice, but I still feel connected to the yoga philosophy because it's out of all the philosophies I've studied, it's the one that has just touched my heart the most. The follow-up question, and, and maybe both of you can answer it, is just what does your asana practice look like? And is there a way to differentiate it? You know, we talked before we started recording about this, you know, 20 minutes of heart rate elevation, 20 minutes of strength, and 20 minutes of yoga. Like where how do we know that we're doing yoga in our asana practice or are we really using the word yoga when what we mean is asana? I think we're really using the word yoga when what we mean is asana. And I differentiate with that all the time. I call it an asana practice because if we look at the history of asana, it's only a couple hundred years old and it wasn't actually created for the reasons we think it's created. Yes, the uh, uh, Hatha Pradipika will have a couple of poses in there, um, but they weren't doing uh, sun salutations and wild thing and all the other, you know, advanced arm balances. How much karasana? Uh, <laughs> right. it, what, what was it um, that they... The that, that was translated as um, I actually I looked up um, one of the one of the definitions for Chamatkara, which my pronunciation probably is not very good there. I apologize. Um, in the Monier Williams Dictionary once, and I got the definition um, festive turbulence, which is not what they called it in Anusara, but I just love that that definition, festive turbulence pose. And we're talking that's a wild thing, right? Yeah, yeah. It's been called everything, right? And none of it has any real basis. I think when we get really precious about the poses, we lose the yoga. The yoga is the philosophy. The yoga is that eight limbs, that, that lesson that we learned from the Gita, the lessons that we learned from the Vedas. That's the yoga. That's yoga. This stuff that we do flipping around our mat, I love it. It's fun. Don't get me wrong. I do it every day. I'm all about it. But it's not yoga. It's really calisthenics, right? When if you actually think about a sun salute, it's really a burpee. Like if you're doing the jump back, jump forward, is it not a burpee? So could... Could my asana also be my run in the morning where I go through all my thoughts and my feelings and I get my best ideas and I work through the trauma of my childhood, do a lot of that in running, a lot of the trauma of my childhood, the trauma of my everyday, the fight I had with my 15-year-old over whatever I fight with my 15-year-old about. That's what that I'm processing all of that. So that could be my asana. Or my asana can be um, my husband created a gym in the garage because we're in lockdown forever. I've just made peace with it. I'm never going back to the gym. So we moved our cars into the driveway. I have that privilege. And now my garage is a fully functioning gym. We just keep going on like uh, Facebook marketplace. And there's this thing called Kijiji, which is like Craigslist in America. We just keep looking for fitness equipment and putting it in the garage. And so when I'm out there building my strength in my body, I'm also building my resilience to continue the fight for equity. So these are, this is 
this is the practice, right? And then when I'm flipping around on my yoga mat, I'm thinking about everything I've learned. So that 20, 20, 20, or that 30, 30, 30, where I'm doing all the things is in its entirety, my asana practice for the most part, but the actions that I do in the world to make this more equitable for everyone, to make this a better place for all of us so that my descendants could look back at me as their ancestor and go, this is what my ancestor did to deconstruct an unfair world. That's my yoga. Well said. Yeah. So you can do yoga anywhere. Anywhere. Which is the name of your book. (laughs) (laughs) That was such a good segue. So many people have said to both of us, I know, like, wow, the name of your book, which the, the name of our book is Yoga Where You Are. It's so appropriate for these times that we're like, we we really had no idea. Like, yeah. <laughs> you decided on the name more, like. It was in- a working title, actually. It wasn't yeah. even going to be the name of the book. It was a working title. Yeah. And like 2018. And then all of a sudden it ended up being very appropriate. One of the things I noticed about your book, which I find to be kind of unusual is that even though it's about accessible yoga, it also doesn't shy away from challenge because it seems like there's this divide, right? Like either you teach accessible yoga and you're like, you know, sitting in a chair the whole time and that's perfectly wonderful, but it's not what everybody wants. You know, there's possibly a great majority of people who show up at a yoga class want to be challenged. And so I think one of the big questions that I get a lot from yoga teachers is how do I do both of these things at the same time? How do I make my classes accessible so that I'm not excluding anyone who shows up in the room, but also offer a challenge to the vast majority of people because that's what they showed up for? A hundred percent. I think along the lines of when uh, Kat and I were thinking about this book, we, as much as it's beginner friendly, that wasn't our major focus. Right. Our major major focus was what does yoga where you are look like? Because some of us have a very strong asana practice and like you say, want to be challenged. And there's a lot of us who love to look at these really challenging asana poses and go, yeah, my body doesn't bend that way and that's not going to work out. So how did we bridge the divide, right? How did we find, okay, Here's one version of the pose. Here's another version of the pose. Here's a version of the pose with the chair. Here's a version of the pose with the wall. And then invite people. When I teach, this is how I teach. I invite people to choose their own adventure, right? Like, I'm going to start here, but you can go here, here, and here. And all of them are asana and all of them are great. And I really make sure when I'm teaching that I don't go, here's option one, here's option two, here's option three. I'm really clear about here's an option, here's an option, here's an option. Choose your adventure. Or my favorite thing to say is customize your practice. Like this is your body. These are some options. Customize your practice. I go, who doesn't want a custom Siriano dress? I know I do. I don't know. My lifetime goal is to have Christian Siriano make me a custom dress. So I want you to put on your asana practice like you put on a custom piece. This is custom to my body. And that was the intention, I think, around this. And we wanted to give tools to teachers, and we also wanted to give tools to practitioners. And we didn't want it to be either or. We wanted it to be exactly that, yoga where you are. And so that's 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 my take on it. You have feelings on that, Kat? <laughs> yeah, no, totally. I think well, what we always say is the reason why we wrote this book is because we wish that this were the sort of book that existed for us. Like we would get frustrated because a lot of books that are not only geared toward accessible yoga, but that feature more diverse practitioners always seem to be geared toward beginners. And we wanted something that would resonate with people who maybe wanted to explore more challenging poses, but also wanted to do so in a way that worked with them in a way that met with their needs and goals. So that was that was really important to us too, for sure. Um, And another thing that's been really helpful for me is just this philosophy of simple yet challenging in Mm, teaching classes. A class can be really physically challenging, but you don't have to do, I mean, you certainly could include more, I don't like the word advanced, but just for sake of, you know, speaking the yoga language here, more quote advanced asana variations. Um, And that doesn't have to be there for a class to be hard. Um, You don't have to even stand up to get your heart rate pumping. You could move your arms vigorously and 
oh my goodness, this, I used to teach a class that was um, like a, a yoga hit hybrid class, high intensity interval training. And I remember teaching that entire class um, without standing up once one time and we all got our heart rates pumping and it was simple, but it was challenging. And so there's definitely room for that too, that it doesn't always have to be this binary of easy yoga, hard yoga, that this isn't about easy or hard. It's not about beginner or advanced. It's about what are your needs what are your goals and how can you adapt the practice to fit your life instead of, as you always say, Diane, trying to change yourself to fit the practice. Yeah. And I think that is where a lot of newer teachers struggle is that they can't visualize anything beyond harder poses as a way to bring challenge into the practice, but more detail is more challenging. <laughs> more specific is more challenging. Holding stuff for longer is more challenging, right? We all remember, okay, now we're going to press down inner spiral and then we had to hug the, hug the midline. Now I'm very keen on pushing away. Like, can you push down and push wide? And all that stuff makes things way challenging. All that stuff raises your heart rate. And you might be only in something like a warrior too, which I find is very accessible to a lot of different people, um, whether you're using a wall or on a chair or a ball or whatever it is. But yeah, I love this idea of simple yet challenging. And to be quite honest, if you look in the book, Kat's doing all those hardcore arm balances. You don't see me doing any of that. And if, if I'm doing it, I'm on a wall or I'm on a chair or something like that. So, you know what I mean? We were really clear when we were choosing the poses we were going to demo. Kat's like, I don't do back ones. I'm like, okay, I do back yeah, No back bends for me. You see all of the, the beautiful, like gorgeous, open-hearted back bends. That's all Diane. <laughs> so I have a story about John Friend. And really the moment that I started to question, I was in a workshop and this was, I think this was in Columbia, South Carolina. And this was Sunday morning and John shows up. So it's Sunday morning means like we've already done Friday and Saturday. This is the last Our day, right? Very tired. <laughs> tired. And um, John just starts like, I don't know what he did the night before. I think he partied too much. He just starts making us do Urdhva Dhanurasana over and over and over with hardly any warm up, And he's just dialing it in and just like, again, again. And it didn't feel great in my body. And you know, you guys understand, but listeners might not. We like really looked up to him. Like he was super, super knowledgeable. We were like, this guy knows his shit. And I trust him because he's told me that the only way to advance is to trust him. And so I was like, all right, I'm just going to try. I'm just going to try, right? He's got to be doing this for a reason. I was in so much pain and I got a headache and I like, I, I, you know, fortunately I was not dumb enough to keep going, you know, but I tried for like 30 or 45 minutes. And then I was like, this is not working for me. And that was a, that was the beginning of the end for me. Like, I was just like, this guy did not show up with a plan. He did not, he was not reading the room. He was not, he did not have our best interests at heart in that moment. He was just dialing it in and trusting that for people who can do a lot of backbends that, you know, they are, they do develop euphoria. And that was, that's a big part of the whole, um, system, you get people hooked on euphoria. And um, I don't know, I just, that just came to me as you're talking about these backbends. It's like, I could do backbends when I was um, 19 or 20. And by that time, I was only like maybe 30. But I honestly think that doing Anusara probably hurt my back. I'm sure. Like it had way too much emphasis on deep backbends again, as a spiritual practice, because the deeper you would get in the back bends, the, the more, more spiritual you were. Absolutely. And for me, I, um, I have a lordotic spine. So I have a genetic predis predisposition to a back bend and have been doing a wheel my entire life and could do a wheel if I never practiced yoga. So it's genetic privilege right off the bat, right? So me doing a whole hour of uh, backbends is no big deal because I'm halfway there with the lordotic spine. But yeah, it's really interesting when you start seeing your teachers 
as people, uh, you know, because we have a tendency to put people up on these pedestals and then when they fart or eat a burger or whatever it is we deem um, offensive to us, we kick them off that pedestal so hard, but we put them up there to begin with, but, you know, they helped us to get, like, we were like, from them up there. And once they got up there, um, once you come into your own being and your own understanding, then you can see what you're really looking at. And it's a flawed human being. That, that just brings up like that spiritualizing of the asana that you're coming back to, like associating backbends with an open heart, things like that. It's just so, it's so just frankly ridiculous. I always think back to this time I went to a Bikram class. Um, again, yet another very problematic um, founder, very problematic, um, with a friend of mine. And this friend that I went to class with, she is the sweetest, kindest, most just, just peaceful, loving person that I know. Um, I tend to be a little bit on the, um, on the, maybe I can get a little bit on the testy side. Sometimes I have a little bit of a shorter fuse than she does. What, you're human? What, are you saying you're human and you have these, all these other characteristics that happen in humanity? What do you mean? I I need to turn in my yoga teacher um, license, I realize, yes. Uh, So we were at this class and I, you know, talking about genetic privilege, I have pretty flexible hamstrings. I have very short legs, a very long torso. I was a dancer. And so I can, you know, touch the floor and back bends. Like you said, Diane, if I never did, um, or I mean, in forward bends, if I never did yoga in my entire life, I would still be able to do that. It's just how my body is. And so we left the class and the teacher said, you must be a very peaceful person. And I thought she was talking to my friend who was, and I was like, oh yeah, she is. And she's like, oh no, you, you must be a very peaceful person because your hamstrings are so open and open hamstrings are associated with peacefulness. And I was just like, well, thank you, but I think you're wrong. Oh my God, the bullshit we tell people. The lies we perpetuate. Oh my God, seriously. You know what this comes back to though is what Kat was talking about and just saying like, I don't know, like we don't have to make yoga more than it is. And I think that that is, it, it happens from insecurity. It happens from like a feeling of not being enough. Mm, 100%. And so then we, we want to search out like, what are all these stories I can tell that'll make me feel more important. That'll make me feel more knowledgeable. And the truth is to really practice yoga is to just be okay as you are. Let's let go of all the extra fluff because it's, it's not helpful. You know, it's not really leading people to a deeper experience of the moment to, to honesty, to nonviolence, right? Having, extra details and basically myths. And it's not that, you know, like stories are great. Stories are useful um, teaching tools, but sometimes we just, we forget what is the point behind the story and get like wrapped up in the story itself. 100%, I agree 100%. So speaking of that, what do you wish were taught in yoga teacher trainings? Cause I know that many yoga teachers trainings have come a long way in the past five or 10 years, right? There's been a huge evolution and the information we have access to now is so different than even 10 years ago. But I know that there are still patterns that are problematic. And so I love to find out from each guest that I have, what do you think would be of most benefit to the world if it were more included and more emphasized or even included at all in yoga teacher trainings? There are a few things that come to mind for me. Um, One of them is very, on a practical sense, um, scientific literacy when it comes to actually reading and interpreting studies, yoga studies, and figuring out what they actually say and learning to look at things critically. So we present yoga honestly. So we don't present it as a cure-all. So people don't think that because yoga doesn't get rid of their anxiety, that yoga doesn't heal their, you know, anything that they might be uh, working with, that 
they're doing it wrong to really look at, okay, this study that showed that yoga helped with X, Y, or Z maybe had a very small sample size, or maybe didn't have a great control group, or it probably didn't prove that yoga fixed something. It might've shown that yoga was beneficial for specific people in this specific way at this specific time in this specific situation. So to really look at the studies that you know we're using to promote yoga and to get excited about that and to get excited about the ways that we can use yoga to improve our own lives and the lives of others, but to also understand that it's not magic, that it's not going to make you a good person practicing yoga either, you know, to kind of look at it in the other end of the spectrum either, that you're you, that you have to do the work and there are a lot of tools that you can have and that yoga is one wonderful tool that we can use to enhance our lives and maybe even the lives of others, but to really also think critically about it and the way that we're presenting it. So I would say, I guess, critical thinking, scientific literacy would be my answer. I have to agree with Kat. What I wrote down when I was organizing my thoughts was discernment. That's the word that came up for me. Um, We teach that in yoga philosophy, discernment. Do we practice it? Not so much. And the fact that capitalism has gotten a hold, Western culture and capitalism has gotten a hold of yoga and made it a function of beauty or an expensive mat or how you look in a certain pose or are you doing it for the gram and all that kind of stuff. I wish that we could tell people in yoga teacher training that this is a practice that will be individual to you. You will take from it what you need. You need to honor where it comes from. You didn't create it, we didn't create it. This is a practice that was created by a marginalized group of people, the asana practice in and of itself. And the the philosophy is a set of guidelines for, for living your life and that's it. The rest of it, is super slick marketing and a lot of capitalism trying to get you to spend your money in all kinds of places. When I think back around the amount of money I spent to become an Anasara inspired, I got to Anasara inspired yoga teacher just because the whole thing fell apart right then. Um, when I got my inspired, I think I was inspired for six weeks. And And that's, Diane, I had no idea. You and I were exactly like right down to the week, like exactly. Yes. Like six weeks I was inspired. And then I was like, oh, resigning, right? Like, you know, everybody was exactly. I got the certificate and then resigned. Yeah. Yeah. So just to say I did the training or whatever it was. Um, but that's the thing that comes up for me. Discern it. Pay attention. Like that's the whole point of it. To be conscious. Pay attention. Read the room. Like you were talking about, read the room. Look at people's reactions to you when you say stuff that's stupid or when you're not paying attention or like learn about yourself and the rest of it, the rest of it's just smoke and mirrors. Well, this has been a fabulous conversation. I'd love to have you guys back sometime to dive into some of these topics more deeply. In addition to the book, Yoga Where You Are, which I assume is available everywhere. Everywhere. We recommend your local bookseller, but everywhere you can find it. And then there's bookshop.com. Are you guys familiar with that website? Yes. Oh, it's one, Diane, you'll love it. Okay, well, I'm going there now, clearly. It's a online book reseller that supports local bookstores. Yes, okay, awesome. So it's as easy as Amazon, but it's not Amazon. Perfect. Great. That is so great. But I'm a big fan of always supporting local. So even if your local bookstore doesn't, doesn't have it, they'll order it for you. So exactly. Yeah. And where else can listeners find you if they want to learn more? You can find me at Diane Bondi Yoga. I've consolidated my entire life onto my website. So I have a podcast called Two Black Girls Talk About Everything that I do with my friend Dee. We talk about all this juicy stuff around yoga, among other things. Uh, you can find me on Yoga International. I have a lot of content there, but most of all, you can find me on dianebondyyoga.com. And you can find me primarily on yogainternational.com. Um, I think I'm still Cat he- uh, Hegberg on there. And um, you can find my classes, courses, lots of articles that I've written on there. Um, you can also go to catdoeshandstands.com, which is my very sparse website. And I'm probably most active on Instagram at at K 
cat Heg Burglar. That is an homage to my childhood hero, the Hamburglar. And it's my name, Cat H-E-A-G-B-E-R-G-L-A-R. Very confusing, but very funny, I think. We'll I- add it in the show notes so it'll be easy to find. Awesome. Thank you two so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. This was Thank wonderful. You. So many fascinating threads in that conversation. I really hope to have both Kat and Diane back in the future to go deeper on a few of those topics. Meanwhile, I'm curious about how you are doing with your self-care and especially what do you do when you get off track? I find it really fascinating with observing my own process is that is these times when I watch myself behaving in a way that I know is out of alignment with what my body and my nervous system need. Last week, for example, I skipped my workout three days in a row. I had no good reason, but I watched my mind creating stories to justify my behavior. I knew there were stories and I still didn't do it. So I'm working to practice some patience with myself because I do understand that seeing my unhelpful stories for what they are is really already a win. And that recognition helps me get out get back on track faster. And by the way, I do not think it's a problem for other people to not exercise for three days. This is just about what works for me personally. And I've recognized for both my physical and my mental health, I don't do well if I go more than two days in a row without a moderately challenging workout. And really one day off at a time seems to be the best for me unless I overdo it, which is not very often. So the good news is that because I was perfectly aware of what I was doing the entire time, I also was able to connect it to why I was getting grumpier and grumpier and why my body was getting more and more uncomfortable. So this relationship with the effects of my behavior is what motivates me to return to the positive habits that I've spent so many years cultivating. I hope that your gaps in self-care also get smaller and smaller and that your relationship with your own nervous system and your own innate intelligence and wisdom gets sweeter and sweeter. I'm so grateful for these tools that I've learned that help me care for my body, because honestly, I'm just not happy with the person I become when I don't. That's all I've got for today. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end, and thank you for caring enough to teach yoga.